Turn with me to Jeremiah 22 tonight. Jeremiah 22. Weren't we there last week, Patrick? We were. Didn't you say we were going to pick up the pace? I did. But at the end of chapter 22 last week, we come to a verse, came to a verse, and tonight we come again to a verse, that I find amazing. And maybe it's just me. Maybe we'll get to the end of the night tonight, and you're going to say, big whoop. You, you, you paused the study for that, and, and if so, I apologize in advance. But this verse and the exposition of this verse, where this verse leads, where it takes us, is part of my testimony. And so maybe I'm just laying my trip on you guys tonight, but this, this is part of how God revealed himself to me. This is part of how God led me to him. This is how God demonstrated to me that this book that we call the Bible, really a collection of 66 books, is undeniably, demonstrably of supernatural origin. Engineered by God. God who intervenes in history. God who inserted himself into this plane of existence to die for us. That's the story of this book. And this book testifies to its own veracity. This book proves itself to be true. And so, all of that said, tonight I'm going to hit pause on our march through Jeremiah to take a deep dive into this verse, to follow it where it leads. And I hope it leads you to worship in a deeper way than than even when you came here tonight. And by the way, I say all of that knowing that some of you know exactly where I'm headed. It's not like it's a deep mystery. But I hope if this is familiar territory for you tonight, I hope that you'll enjoy revisiting it along with the rest of us. Jeremiah 22. We'll back up to verse 24. Jeremiah, if you weren't with us last week or, you know, if if that was seven days ago for you, Jeremiah has been pronouncing judgment against the last four of the last five kings of Judah. Probably not all at once. This is probably not one sermon that he uttered in one place at one time. This is probably a collection of messages that he collects or assembles after the fact. Probably things that he or his scribe Baruch gathered together after 40 plus years of ministry. Well, verse 24, it's Jehoiakim's turn to be in the spotlight. Do we still have that slide from last week, that family tree slide? There it is. So we looked at that family tree in depth last week. Josiah begets Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, and then finally Zedekiah. Verse 24, we're talking about Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim. Jehoiachin, Coniah, same person, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But he's 18 years old when his father is killed. His father rebels against Nebuchadnezzar. It's unclear whether Nebuchadnezzar's troops kill him or whether his own people slay him after he attempts to surrender. But 597, 598 or so, his son ascends the throne. He's only on the throne for three months before he's taken to Babylon in chains. And there he's imprisoned until Nebuchadnezzar dies in 562 B.C. So he's in prison for 35 years. 
after Nebuchadnezzar dies, Jehoiachin is released in pr- from prison, but he's never allowed to go back to Jerusalem. He dies in exile. Uh, and Jeremiah 52, when we get there, if we're all still here, um, tells us that story. And none of that is the interesting part, by the way. That's just background. That's just a refresher of where we left off last week, the years leading up to the third and final uh, siege of Jerusalem. Well, the third and final attack against Jerusalem and the final siege under the final king Zedekiah in 586. But before us tonight is this strange pronouncement that we ended up with last week, this strange pronouncement that Jeremiah makes in regard to the next to last king, the 90-day king. Verse 24, as I live, says the Lord, though, jo- though Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet on my right hand, yet I would pluck you off, and I would give you into the hand of those who seek your life, and into the hands of those whose face you fear, the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and the hand of the Chaldeans. So I will cast you out, and your mother who bore you, into another country where you were not born, and there you shall die, but to the land to which they desire to return, there they shall not return. So let's get one distraction out of the way. Jehoiachin, Jeconiah, Coniah, three names for the same guy. In Hebrew, they actually, all three names, convey the same idea, Yahweh will be firmly established. Now, why the change in name? From Jehoiachin to Jeconiah, don't know. Maybe it's just to, to, to more easily differentiate him from dad. Hard to say. Coniah is interesting because Coniah drops the part of the Hebrew root that explicitly means or points to Yahweh. It, it still implies Yahweh will be firmly established, but it doesn't say that explicitly. And so you wonder if the Holy Spirit or Jeremiah or both are making an editorial comment here, removing the explicit reference to Yahweh in his name as if to say you have no explicit connection to Yahweh. You're not firmly established by him. In fact, you're the opposite of firmly established by him. You're unestablished. You're going to be displaced by him, by God. So so don't let the name distract you. But back up to to verse 24, what is God saying? Though though Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet on my right hand, yet I'd pluck you off. A signet is a type of ring, we know this. A symbol, it's, it's, it's a ring with a raised emblem that's a sign of authority, a symbol of authority, and it's also useful. You can dip it in wax and then use it to seal a document with with a, an essential signet, a, a unique signature that's that's exclusively yours. Press it in wax, you seal it. Okay, that's the king's seal. Nobody can imitate that because he's the only one who has that ring. It the, the so that made the ring closely held. You didn't take it off of your finger. That would to take it off would be to hand somebody your date of birth and your social security number, and say you know, hey, go go get all my accounts. It seems underline seems, that Jehoiachin has so offended God somehow that even if he were as close, as trusted, as treasured, as valued as, as a signet ring, God would still pull him off. It's, it's, you know, we, we, we go to Romans and we say nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus the Lord. It's that except the opposite. 
God is saying nothing can repair the relationship between us. Verse 25, you're going to be a prisoner of Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 26, you're going to be carried off into exile to a foreign land, Babylon, obviously, you and your mom. Verse 27, you're going to long to return, but guess what you're never going to get to? And 2 Kings 24 and 25 give us the, the historical perspective on all of that. But this is where things get interesting. Verse 28, we read, Is this man Coniah a despised, broken idol, a vessel in which is no pleasure? Why are they cast out, he and his descendants, and cast into a land which they do not know? Broken idol, other translations, broken pot, broken vessel, despised, worthless, good for nothing, cast out, not, not just dumped out, but, but thrown out. It's the same verb used for, for Saul chucking a spear at David. He's pitched. What does that mean? That's the question verse 28 asks. Verse 28 begins the answer, or earth, earth, hear the word of the Lord. That threefold repetition that signals either, either importance or frustration or both. Hey, 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 everybody listen. Judah's asking a question that concerns everyone. It concerns the whole planet. Everyone should hear this. Hear what? Thus says the Lord, write this man down as childless, a man who shall not prosper in his days. Write him down as childless. Doesn't mean he was childless. 1 Chronicles 3, verse 17 tells us that he had seven sons. So he had all kinds of children, but God is saying, write them off. You know, like, like you write off a debt or write down a debt. Cancel it. Pretend it never existed. Erase it. Act like it never happened. None of his sons have, have any chance of seeing the throne in Jerusalem. But more than that, still verse 30, none of his descendants shall prosper sitting on the throne of David and ruling anymore in Judah. God just said no descendant of Jehoiachin can ever sit on the throne of David. The line of Jehoiachin, Jeconiah, Coniah, that line is cursed. That bloodline. And the first question that comes to our minds is why? What did he do? Scripture doesn't say. And I actually think it's the wrong question. Let's come back to that. If that's, can we put a pin in that one? What did, what did Jehoiachin do that was so bad? Pause that and ask instead, what does the blood curse mean? Let's make sure that we understand the implications of what God just pronounced. On the face of it, it seems to raise real issues around the Davidic covenant. God's promise to David that the Christ, the Messiah, would be a descendant of David and rule forever on David's throne. 1 Chronicles 17, verse 11 is the reference there. God promised David, one of your descendants is going to be the long-promised Messiah, the Savior of Israel, and will sit forever on your throne except that God just cursed the direct line of succession. I imagine Satan on that day came home to all of the demons and said, did you hear what happened? God made a mistake. He threw one in the dirt. He fumbled the ball. He cursed the ancestral line of Messiah. And then I imagine God saying to the angels, <laughs> okay, watch this one. 
It's like when I'm playing chess with Caleb. And I say, oh, 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 he made a mistake. I've got him. I've got him. And then he makes his next move, and I say, oh. <laughs> Flip over to Matthew chapter 1. Keep a finger in Jeremiah. We'll come back. Matthew chapter 1, the first of the four Gospels, and we know that each of the four Gospels presents Jesus through a slightly different lens. Matthew is interested in presenting Jesus as Messiah, as the fulfillment of Jewish prophecy. Luke presents Jesus not as Messiah so much as the Son of Man. Luke is a doctor. He's interested in Jesus' humanity. John is all about Jesus' divinity, presents Jesus as the Son of God, and Mark, of course, presents Jesus as the suffering servant. Matthew begins his gospel with a genealogy, and because he's a Levite, because he's from the priestly tribe, he begins Jesus' genealogy as any Jew would with Abraham, with the first of all of the Jewish people, the first patriarch of Israel. And so you've got Abraham there in Matthew 1, verse 2. And you get to David in verse 6, and then Solomon. You get to Josiah in verse 10, and Jeconiah in verse 11. At which point we say, rut-row. Because from Jeconiah to Sheltiel, and then Zerubbabel, and then to Joseph. But Joseph is simultaneously than the heir to the throne and disqualified from the throne. Matthew lays out, hey, he's the heir to the throne of David, but he can't sit on that throne because of this blood curse. But Jesus could. Why? Jesus doesn't have any of Joseph's DNA. Didn't have, doesn't have, because Jesus is still fully man as well as fully God. He doesn't have any of Joseph's DNA. He's adopted. He's Joseph's legal heir. And we talked a lot about adoption when we were in Galatians and Romans, right? He had all of the rights and privileges as if he were Joseph's biological son, even though he wasn't. Joseph could never sit on David's throne. But Jesus could. And Matthew writes his genealogy in a way that highlights this. If you look down at verse 16, Matthew 1, verse 16, Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. He's calling attention to the fact that Jesus was born of Mary. He's calling attention to the fact that the blood curse is bypassed. How? By Jesus' virgin birth. But wait, 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 wait. First Chronicles 17, we didn't turn there, I just kind of referenced it. But what it says, First Chronicles 17, verse 11, it shall be when your days are fulfilled, God speaking to David, when you go to be with your fathers, that I will set up your seed after you, who will be of your sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build me a house, and I'll establish his throne forever. Seed, son, offspring, other translations render it. So Messiah has to not just be a legal heir, also has to 
possess David's DNA. He has to be a biological descendant of David. Matthew, you haven't fixed anything. That's where Luke comes in. Or more to the point, that's where Luke tells us that Mary comes in. Turn to Luke chapter 3. In Luke's genealogy of Jesus, Luke, a medical doctor, interested in Jesus' humanity, presenting Jesus consistently in his gospel as the Son of Man, gives us a different genealogy. John gives us a different genealogy, too. We don't immediately recognize it as such. But John, who presents Jesus as the Son of God, gives us a genealogy that reads simply, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John's genealogy establishes Jesus as the preexistent one. There isn't a genealogy in Mark. Why? Because Mark presents Jesus as the suffering servant, and we don't care about the pedigree of a servant. But Luke starts with Adam, the first man. And he runs his genealogy to Joseph, verse 23, the son of Heli. Except son is inferred. We read it in the English. It's not there in the Greek. Heli is Mary's father. Heli is Joseph's father-in-law. And, and there's some cute things that you can, you can get into around, um, around how Joseph was also his heir, but less important for our purposes tonight. Matthew starts at Abraham and goes down to Jesus. Luke starts at Adam. But that's not the only difference. Verse 31. Joseph and Mary both trace their ancestry to David, but after that, things fork. Is verse 31 the verse that I really want? Uh, That's what happens when you study in a different Bible. Yeah, David, verse 31 who, if we go backwards, is who begets Nathan, who begets Matatha, who begets Manan, who begets Malia. Joseph takes his line through Solomon down to Jehoiakim and Jehoiachin. Mary is a descendant of David, not through Solomon, but through Nathan, the second surviving son of Bathsheba. And so she has Davidic DNA. She's a descendant of David, but through a different branch of the family tree, avoiding the blood curse. So Jesus gets his legal right to the throne through a straight line through Joseph, but he's still, as he has to be, as God said he would be, a descendant of David through Mary, whose DNA he does share. It's elegant, right? We talk about how Jesus fulfills prophecy, how Jesus confirms his identity by by walking out, by living out all of the, the qualifications that Scripture said would differentiate him. Anyone can claim to be the Messiah. There was a guy in Brooklyn a few years ago who convinced a, a whole synagogue of of, of uh, 
observant Jews, that he was the Messiah, and, and, and he's dead now, but they still believe that he's the Messiah ascended to heaven. If you, if you read in the paper about the, 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 the Jewish synagogue that was digging tunnels underneath Brooklyn, that was them. Anyone can claim to be the Messiah. But scripture said, Messiah will be of the tribe of Judah, will be born in Bethlehem, will be a refugee in Egypt, will be uh, born at a time that's accompanied by lamentation, the, the, the slaughter that, that Herod instituted, will be born at a time where capital punishment is removed from Judah, and, and all of the other prophecies that Jesus' birth fulfilled. How do you arrange to simultaneously fulfill all of those? You can't conspire to do it. How do you do it by accident? You can't. It's mathematically impossible. But even if you could, how do you arrange this unique ancestry, direct legal heir to the throne through dad and still a biological descendant through mom? How do you engineer that? How do you arrange that? How do you conspire to make that happen? You can't. There's no way which for me 30 years ago meant I had to start taking this book seriously. And I had to start coming to terms with the fact that Jesus is exactly who he claims to be. That's what it meant to me. That was 30 years ago. Here's a conclusion I've come to more recently, though. Remember that question we hit pause on a little while ago? What did Jehoiachin do that warranted this blood curse in the first place? that necessitated all of these machinations? 30 years ago, I didn't care. 30 years ago, I shrugged and said, I don't know, but it must have been pretty bad. Because <laughs> the, the teachers I was listening to and the guys that I was reading also said, well, Scripture doesn't say, but clearly it was really bad. Here's what I've come to believe 30 years later, and, and this is in the disagree with me and we can still be friends category. This, this, I, don't, I don't hold this with a closed fist. This is open-hand territory. But here's what I think Jehoiachin did to warrant this dramatic punishment, this unique blood curse. Nothing. I don't think that he did anything that was any worse than any of the kings before him. I don't think that he committed some unique sin that warranted this unique punishment. You can disagree with me, but here's how I get there. Point one, look back at verse 24. Jeremiah is pronouncing this, which means that God has decided this before Jehoiachin, Coniah, is taken prisoner by Nebuchadnezzar. Some people try to run an argument, well, God is judging him for his ignoble surrender to Nebuchadnezzar. He, betra he betrayed his country. I don't think so. I don't think it can be connected to the surrender or the events surrounding it because God is pronouncing it before that happened. Well, maybe God knew prophetically. God did know prophetically, but I don't think that that argument holds water. Add to that, he'd only been on the throne for 90 days. And he was 18 years old at the time. Did he have time to do anything? And I get that that doesn't prove anything. You can do a lot of heinous stuff in just a short period of time. But it begs the question, what could he have done that was worse than his dad? Look back at verse 17, which means that we have to go back to Jeremiah. But look back at verse 17 and the things that Jeremiah says about Jehoiakim. 
They shall not uh, actually go back higher than that. Go back to, to uh, verse 17. Your eyes and your heart are for nothing but your covetousness, for shedding innocent blood and practicing oppression and violence. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning Jehoiakim, they shall not lament for him. They, he shall be buried, verse 19, with the burial of a donkey, dragged and cast out beyond the gates of Jerusalem, which was a different kind of curse. To be unburied was a curse. Did Jehoiachin really do something worse than we just read? As a teenager, in three short months? I don't think so. And here's another reason why. Keep a finger in Jeremiah. Go to 2 Kings 21. I think to understand what happens to Jehoiachin, we have to go back further, further than Jehoiakim, further than Josiah. I think we have to go back to Manasseh and see what God said about Manasseh a century before Jehoiachin was born. 2 Kings 21, look at verse 11. Because Manasseh, king of Judah, has done these abominations acted more wickedly than all the Amorites who were before him, and has made Judah sin with his idols. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel, Behold, I'm bringing such calamity on Jerusalem and Judah that whoever hears of it, both of his ears will tingle. I'll stretch over Jerusalem the measuring line of Samaria, the plummet of the house of Ahab. I'll wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. So I will forsake, get this, the remnant of my inheritance and deliver them into the hands of their enemies and they shall become victims of plunder to all of their enemies because they've done evil in my sight and have provoked me to anger since the days their father came out to Egypt even to this day. And it continues, but you get the idea. Keep a finger in 2 Kings, flip back to Jeremiah, and look at Jeremiah 15. Jeremiah 15, we've read this. The Lord says to Jeremiah, Even if Moses and Samuel stood before me, my mind would not be favorable toward this people. Cast them out of my sight and let them go forth. And it shall be if they say to you, where should we go? You tell them, thus says the Lord, such as are for death to death, and to the sword to the sword, for famine for famine, for captivity to captivity. I'll appoint over them four forms of destruction, says the Lord, the sword to slay, the dogs to drag, the birds of the heaven and the beasts of the earth to devour and destroy. I'll hand them over to trouble, to all the kingdoms of the earth. Why? Because of Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah, king of Judah, for what he did in Jerusalem. Now go to 2 Kings 24. Keep a finger in Jeremiah. Second Kings 24, now we're getting closer to Jeremiah's present day. In his days, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up, and Jehoiakim... Jehoiachin's dad became his vassal for three years. Then he turned and rebelled against him, and the Lord sent against him raiding bands of Chaldeans and Syrians and Moabites and Ammonites. He sent them against Judah to destroy it, according to the word of the Lord, which he had spoken by his servants, the prophets. Surely at the commandment of the Lord, this came upon Judah to remove him from his sight because of the sin of Manasseh, according to all that he had done and the innocent blood that he'd shed. And now back to Jeremiah, and we'll stay in Jeremiah but, but, but go to Jeremiah 25, which we haven't read together yet. 
and just glance at Jeremiah 25, verse 8. Thus says the Lord of hosts, because you've not heard my words, behold, I'll take and send all the families of the north, says the, says the Lord, and Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, will bring them against this land, against its inhabitants, and against those nations all around, and will utterly destroy them and make them an astonishment, a hissing, perpetual desolation. Moreover, I'll take from them the voice of mirth, the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, the voice of the bride, the sound of the millstone, the light of the lamp, and the whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment. And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. That's, I didn't start at the beginning of the chapter, but that's a pronouncement under Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin's father. God said those things before Jehoiachin was on the throne. What is your point, Patrick? Like I said, I think the weight of Scripture suggests that the blood curse pronounced against Jehoiachin isn't really about him at all. I could, I, could, I could go to double or triple the number of verses that we went to, but you'd all walk out on me. But if we did, we'd see again and again God's judgment is against the kingly line since Manasseh, and, and even before, but especially against Manasseh. A line that had gone steadily downhill, that had had its, its moments of revival conspicuously under, under Josiah. But those were the exceptions that proved the rule almost. The kings have been driving people, dragging people from the Lord. And for more than a century... God had announced his intention to put a stop to it. I think what he pronounces against Jehoiachin is not personal. I think it's the culmination of the nation's rebellion and the king's rebellion for decades. And I think God is just saying it stops here. Not because of what one person had done, but because what of the, the nation had done again and again and again, despite the prophets, despite the warnings, despite the word. But I think that it was also less about judgment. Blood curse. How can that not be judgment? I think it's about mercy. Because I think in cutting off the kingly line, God is saying definitively, don't look to the next family member to save you. Don't think that if you get the right brother or son or nephew on the throne that this thing is going to turn around. It's way past that point. I think that God is, is, is saying by pronouncing this curse, there isn't a king that can save you except one. There's only one who can save you. The king that I send. The king that I am. The king whose birth I've just made, I've just required to be so unique and unprecedented and miraculous, you won't be able to not notice it. The virgin birth. God required Judah to be looking for Someone unique. Looking for the one 
spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when Isaiah says in Isaiah 43, 19, Behold, I'm doing a new thing, a different thing, an unprecedented thing. Not another king, a different king. Understand, I'm not trying to canonize Jehoiachin. He was an evil dude. I'm not trying to say different. The Bible says he was evil. But I think maybe this, this blood curse was less about God's judgment than it was about his mercy. Verse 24, back in Jeremiah 22, come back to home base. God speaks of taking off, putting, putting aside Jehoiachin, like putting aside a signet. And he's saying, this is the hardest thing I've ever done, but I have to do it. Why do you have to do it, God? Why the urgency? What is it that God had to do? He had to do the very first thing that he promises to do in Scripture. Genesis 3.15. What did God have to do? He had to send a Redeemer. He had to send a Savior. He had to send a Messiah. Why? Because he promised to. How did he say we would recognize that Messiah? He said in Genesis 3.15, he would be the seed of the woman, the very first prophecy of the virgin birth. Biology 101, seed is a, is a guy thing. But even in Genesis 3.15, God is, is saying, no, this is going to be unique. He's going to be the seed of David, even though David hadn't been born yet through his mom, through the woman. The only way the blood curse could be defeated was to do what God had promised, to bring forth a Savior, born of a virgin. And he goes on to say, verse, verse 24, 25, 26, 27, 28, your cracked clay pots, kings, your broken jars, you don't hold water. <laughs> You're not useful. Jehoiachin, but, but by extension, the whole kingly line, God is saying, you're, you're not fulfilling your intended function. And notice it doesn't say anywhere in this pronouncement against Jehoiachin, it doesn't specifically say that he was evil and sinful. We know that he was because it says so elsewhere. But here in pronouncing that judgment, that's not what's highlighted. That's not what's declared or stated what God is saying is that you're not helpful, you're not useful. At this point, you're just getting in the way. So I'm going to toss you out like you toss out, toss aside a broken pot. Okay, it's not good for anything anymore. And I'm going to make room for someone, for, for someone who can get the job done, who's not broken, who's not worthless, who's not sinful. And in tossing Jehoiachin out, God left the Jewish people no choice but to wait for the one that God would send. He left them no choice but to watch for the one that God promised. He left them no choice but to pay attention in the hope that they would recognize him and receive him. They didn't, but no one can say that God didn't do everything he could to make sure that Israel would recognize her Messiah. I think it's amazing. 
I think it, it, it testifies to how careful and how special and how loving God's plans are. I think it's a reminder when God closes the door, the worst thing we can do is stand and beat on the door, kick at the hinge, try to pick the lock. Because when God closes the door, even in judgment, notice, he's always opening a door to something better, to someone better. Let's just read the beginning of chapter 23. Because where does God go? Where does the Holy Spirit go immediately after this blood curse? He says, starting in verse 3, I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all of the countries where I've driven them and bring them back to their folds, and they shall be fruitful and increase. I'll set up shepherds over them who will feed them. And they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, nor shall they be lacking, says the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I'll raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. Now this is the name by which he is called, the Lord our Righteousness. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when they shall no longer say, as the Lord lives who brought up the children of Israel from the land of Egypt, but rather as the Lord lives who brought up and led the descendants of the house of Israel from the north country and from all of the countries where I had driven them, and they shall dwell in their own land. Right after God says he's closing a door, he says, but wait, because there's someone even better on the way. Lord, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the promises of Jesus and the prophecies of Jesus. Thank you for the coming of Jesus. Thank you for the death and resurrection of Jesus. And thank you for the soon return of Jesus. And we pray, Lord, that you would wipe the scales from our eyes. That we would recognize the signs of the times. And that we wouldn't cling to worthless, empty vessels. We wouldn't put our trust in, in people, in cracked clay pots. We would know the identity of our deliverer. And not let anything get in the way of watching and waiting and trusting and depending upon the King of all kings, King Jesus. Let's close in humble praise to him.